You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. All right, everyone. Welcome to a super cool episode of The Guidepost. Tony here. Um, before we get started, just a reminder, if you have any questions or comments, send them into comments at uh, saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And if we read it on the air, you will win a new pair of Costas. So um, really excited today. We're staying on this same path uh, to talk about our friend, the false albacore. I have two guides, two board members on here that, um, frankly, deeply depend on these fish at different points throughout their season. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Captain Paul Dixon from New York and Florida, depending on what time of year you fish with them. How are you doing today, Paul? Hi, Tony. I'm doing great. Excited. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you were, we were talking before we hit the record button. Apparently, uh, today was a bluefish day for you. Uh, and you got doubles tomorrow. So we appreciate you being here. We know you're worn out. Um, our other guest is Captain Tom Roller from Water Dog Guide Service, who just got a brand new contender for the fleet and is desperately hoping that the Albies show up in droves this year. Tom, how are you doing this year, buddy? How are you doing, doing today, buddy? I'm doing great today. Thanks, You're doing Tony. Great? Doing great. Looking forward for my boat being rigged. It's electronic in the electronic process. Stuff, yeah. That's fun. That's always fun. You see, like, like Christmas time, just picking out all the goodies, right? Oh, I picked them out a year ago. Now they're just putting them in. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, you guys fish two dramatically different areas. You know, Tom is, Tom is in North Carolina, awful, awful close um you know gulf stream swings right by a little bit little bit warmer climate than where paul is running out of montauk but our little speedster friend the false albacore falls into both your your business models for a decent chunk out of the year um i, I kind of want to talk about like what you know what that means to your business and your clients and how excited they get about it and then we'll get into like how y'all fish for them and all that kind of stuff so, you know, Paul, is there any fish that get, you know, when you're, when you're guiding out of New York, is there any fish that gets your clients more jazzed up than Albies when they come into town? Uh, probably not, unless it was bluefin. But, uh, but <laughs> no, the albacore is, uh, you know, in the fall and everything is, you know, is what everybody, you know, comes for. There's bass blitzes and everything, but it almost gets old with the bass because they're, you know, it's, there's so many of them, but the albacore is such a challenge and it's a fly rotter's dream. So, uh, so most of my guys are fly guys and everything and it's exciting. And, and so why the, is it, a, why is it a fly rotter's dream? Like what could you break down about an Albi that makes it a fly rotter's dream? Well, for us, uh, our main bait in the fall is uh, bay anchovies or what we call rain bait or you know, they call it white bait, all sorts of different. But it comes in huge schools and it sits off Montauk Point and the albacore come into it and, and it's small bait. You know, a lot of times it's only two inches, inch long. 
So the fly actually gives a better presentation than almost anything because you can mimic the bait that they're eating and they key on that bait, you know, so uh, you know, a lot of times you can throw much bigger stuff and they might take it, but a lot of times they won't. So the, uh, the it's a light fly. It's a small fly. We're using usually nine and 10 weight rods with floating lines. And so it's exciting because they're, you know, they're a fast fish and they're busting around the boat and you have to target it. It's challenging. And, uh, you know, everybody loves them. You got to you got to be on your game, right? accurate casts are you all you're all using light leaders you know i don't uh, you know i don't have any problem i think it's presentation fly and matching the hats more than leader you know i rarely go you know below 16 at all and i'm usually using a 16 or 20 pound test so tom um you know albies dominate your fishery for a good hopefully a good chunk of the fall and that's absolutely what a certain clientele goes to North Carolina for. You know, what What are the similarities and the difference from, from what Paul explained? Oh, I mean, a lot of it's very similar, but, you know, a lot of it is my geographic market, right? Um, you, you know, the false albacore fishery where I live, which is the Cape Lookout, you'll hear it referred to as the Harkers Island fishery. You know, if you're fishing this part of the North Carolina out of Carteret County, you're going to be fishing all the same spots. But that's one of the reasons I got into guiding when uh, that fishery started getting really popular in the late 90s. Um, and it's a real destination fishery. And, and you know, when, when people want to come here just to fly fish, that's what they come here for. Right. And while the fishery is probably a little different than Paul's up in New York, I think, you know, I hear. You know, I have a lot of customers from New England who travel down here to fish for, you know, a few days to a week. And they tell me our fish are a little bit easier to catch in the fall, maybe a little bit better bait. But what makes people excited about them is the same thing. And I, I put it this way, you know, I get a lot of fly fishermen who haven't caught one before. And maybe they fish for redfish, maybe they fish for trout and salmon, but they've never held a rod, a fly rod in their hand and seeing that part of their backing. And when they hook into that fish and it just hits the fly going the other direction. And the next thing you know, you're hundred yards into your backing people, just their eyes get really big and they look at me like, what do I do? And I think that that's a really, like a really special thing with, you know, even really experienced fly anglers who just really haven't caught a fish like that before. I've seen, uh, I've seen more people lose a whole setup with false albacore than any other fish. I'm I'm sure our tuna guys, our our board members who fish for tuna, would tell you you know different like big bluefin or yellowfin, but it never fails. Like I've I've been on boats where guys are running running to the other side of the boat, holding their rod up, trying to clear their line. They trip, fall over something, hand hits the deck, rod goes shooting off into shallow orbit, and they never see anything again. Um, it really is a powerful powerful little fish. Now, you know, Paul, what I think I, I know that Tom can run into the, you know, what would be like a, a an ultra large model um, false albacore, you know, in, in, down in North Carolina. What's the average size of your fish, you think, throughout the year? There's in the fall, really, when you get them. 
you know, for us, and I used to guide out of Harker's Island, you know, where Tom is years back and everything. And the reason that, you know, I went down there is our herring run disappeared in the Stripers in November. So I went down there and, and actually lived with uh, Brian and, and Sarah Gardner and, and, uh, and did it down there. So the interesting thing was, is always in Harker's, you had the chance at a true trophy. And we actually caught one that probably would have broke the world's record at 21 pounds at the time, you know, down there. And and it was cool because uh, most of our fish are b between 8 and 10 pounds. A big one for us is if you get a 12-pounder, that's a big fish in Montauk. You know, down there, you could really take a whomper, you know. So, uh, and and I actually have a really funny story, just speaking of, you know, Harkers and Whomper Albacore. But uh, so years ago, Orbis was going to test their Vortex reels, and they had two prototypes at $25,000 a piece. And so just as I was uh, leaving the island or something, they showed up. And and uh, this guy, Paul, I'd worked with him in the past, and he said, oh, man, you got to see this new reel and everything. So I'm looking at it, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, just be careful and everything. You know, if that thing's $25,000, I said, if you leave your fly dangling in the water around here or whatever, the, you know, watch it because these fish, will, you know, you got to be really careful. So don't leave your fly in the water. So, uh, so anyway, so they go out the next day. I leave, and then sure enough, Paul gives this huge fish, and he says, you know, Randy, Randy, take my picture with this fish, you know, and he sets the rod down, you know, and he's holding it, but the fly's in the water, and he's holding up the fish, and the next thing, it gets hit by another fish, and the, the reel goes zinging out with the rod, and they lose $25,000, you know, reel. And the next... <laughs> Next day, so they lost both prototypes at twenty five thousand dollars because Albies around the boat. If you left your fly dangling, the rod was gone. You know, Paul. So. Paul, look at this. Tell you this isn't a this isn't a prototype, but this is one of my this is one of my old vortexes, a seven eight that has just been a workhorse for me for probably I don't know twenty three twenty four years. You know. Yeah. Man, it was a good reel. I'll tell you that much. It's still, uh, it still lands fish, man. It's, it's a, it's a banger of a reel, but that's great. But how do you, I wonder how they went back to the home office and explained how they lost $50,000 in reels. The Perkins were, who owned Orvis, you know, uh, were real disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Well, that's I was waiting. I did that only took ten minutes into the podcast to get a to get a good uh, to get a good Paul story. So you know, y'all know the project that we're doing with Albies, and we're we're putting these little pinger tags in them because we don't have a lot of science on them, and we're going to follow them around the ocean. And I guess people don't value don't have the same value up and down the coast don't put the same value on these fish as we do, um, you know, as, as mid-Atlantic and new England, new England anglers. And apparently there's a, you know, a pretty robust bait fishery that's emerged for these in Florida and our Florida guides who do depend on them are starting to kind of feel the crunch. And, um, 
and you know i don't i i know i know there's a long history of florida using these things as things for strip baits you know it's a real real tough that belly meets real tough and and that'll stay on a hook all day and all night if you're deep dropping or you know fishing for whatever but this is not a this is not a bait fish for us right this is a this is a fish that gets people excited kind of rounds out your season um you know in in y'all's respective areas it rounds out your season and uh and i guess our message is it probably just needs to be respected i mean i i know i'd like to get y'all's input on you know thinking about how some people value them as bait and and what your clients value them as and and how do we how do we come together on that so it's a very good point, Tony, because this is something that's been, you know, on, on the radar of a lot of anglers, not just for the last couple of years, but, you know, for the last decade or so, um, you know, being a South Atlantic council member and be, been engaged in that process before I was a council member, you know, we've had a lot of fishermen in the Southeast coming and saying, hey, you know what, these fish are really important to me. Um, I'm concerned about this or this or this, not just, you know, that particular, you know, this bait fishery in Florida, but this has existed for a while. I would say that the way people value them is just different depending on what sort of fishing culture you come from. I would say, you know, aspects of the offshore fishermen don't really understand their value. Maybe they see them only as a bait fishery um, or don't, something as they don't want to catch trolling. But, you know, for a lot of us who, you know, fish, whether we're fly fish or light tackle fishermen who catch them near shore, we definitely have that value. But when it comes to the bait thing, I think it's important to point out that it's not that we use them for bait that's a problem. It's the fact that they're an unregulated fishery. There's no fisheries management plan. There's no quota. Most of the state, I'm not aware of any state that has any sort of limit. I'm not aware of any sort of commercial limit. So we're not evaluating what the harvest is. We're not evaluating what the impact of that is. And I think that that's the big concern, right? So, because I'm, I'm, I definitely have used them for bait more than a few times, but, um, I think this, you know, I don't even know how to describe the bait fishery because it has so many different aspects, but there's also a food fishery forum too, right? That's, um, increasing in value. They go internationally. I, I don't really know much about it though. I do hear from the fish dealers about it. Uh, it's, you know, it's sort of funny in that regard. The, um, you know, when I first started fishing in a forum years back and, uh, a lot of the old timers and out there would say, oh, my God, they're those mush mouths, they called them. And they hated them because if they were doing for tuna or anything else, they would take their their baits or whatever. And they you know, wouldn't hook the tuna that they were after. So it was almost looked on as a pest. Um, you know, it's it's funny because it really took, I think, the beginning of the fly fishing and, and everything else to really put a. Uh, you know that here's a here's a fish that's very recreational that's close that comes in for the tuna species comes in close to shore that most people even on the beach can catch them you know so uh, I think they became more appreciated as time went on and here's a real game fish that's you know out there to be had uh, the problem that I've seen over the last 20 years is is that once again, you know, once you put a value on a fish, 
you know, then the, whoever wants it is going to, you know, monetize it. And and even up here, you know, you see guys starting to, you know, to keep them and to catch them and, uh, you know, whatever. I know I just talked to Scott Hamilton that was down in Florida. And, you know, he said it's a mere shadow down there of what it was. And and the reason being is that, you know, they've wiped out all the bait in the in the inside estuaries and the pilchards and this and that. So the commercial guy is always looking for the next, you know, something that he can make money on. And so the albacore has turned to one of those things. And he said that with the, this year that, you know, there's a lot of fish out there, but it's a mere shadow. He said it, it it was stretched for about a mile that there was a body of albacore. He said, you know, 15 years ago, that would have been 25, 30 miles of albacore, you know. But he said they're just small groups and everything because you see the, the boats out there that are actually, whether it's strip bait or their cat food or shipping overseas, that they've, you know, created a market and the guys are, you know, getting them. So that's why I think, Tony, that this, you know, the new tagging program and the the, the stuff that, uh, that the Guide Association is doing in conjunction with a lot of the, the laboratories and up and down the coast is really important because, you know, if we can find out where the fish goes, what it does, where it's breeding, what's happening, then you, you know, you get more information and you can get a grip and maybe get something like Tom was saying, that you get some legislation that puts a limit on it at least, or, you know, that gets a grip on it before it's too late, you know, so that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, Paul, I think we can say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And my my position on on false false albacore is, is pretty simple is that none of our guides, our members can afford to lose another fish. And, you know, we've all seen the peaks and valleys and the ups and downs with with fish that we rely on. And and false albacore are really important to our members, all of our members, from Martha's Vineyard down to Florida. And um and and they generate an economy. I mean, there were over, I think, gosh, I, I don't want to misquote anything. I hate doing that. But I think there was about half a million directed trips on the Atlantic coast last year just for false albacore. That's a lot of trips. And I, I guarantee you, a lot of them were charter for hire trips. You know, if it wasn't for the... Uh... The false albacore about seven years ago, the blitzes of bass in Montauk stopped because we had some real problems with spawning year classes. And for two years there, there were no bass blitzes. And that was the first time I'd seen that in 27 years of guiding there. So the uh, false albacore then was outrageous, you know, and this is, I want to say it happened for two years. So it was, I, I think six and seven years ago, whatever. But if it wasn't for the false albacore, there would be no guides left because in that two year span, that was the only fish there. There was no bass. So the false albacore saved us and saved everybody, you know, on the uh, east end of Long Island, for sure. I don't know what it did with everybody else, but if it wasn't for them, the, the blitzes, it, the, the customer would have disappeared. That goes into a couple philosophical things. The first being that, you know, their value is in their abundance. 
right? And I, you know, historically they were abundant because they were not, you know, they're one of these fish. They weren't like yellowfin or bluefin that had a, you know, a big food food market or target on their head, recreationally and commercial. But, you know, when I look at my fishery down here, or I should say the fishery I participate in, um, you know, over the last 20 years, we've had some really good years. We've had some poor years and a lot of some of the some of those poor years were definitely attributed to hurricanes and you know big freshwater events that we had uh, in the fall that just impact the, you know washes a lot of the bait out and it's your fall you know water's dirty and the fall fishing isn't as good um well i remember one time i think this was you know about let's say 2010 2014 range there's a few two three year period in there where just the albacore fishing just wasn't that good and I would say it was mostly environmental. And wow, it was really kind of depressing to see how fewer guides were fishing, right? And how fewer trips you had in the fall or how you had to, you know, do other things, which quite frankly, there's not as much versatility, particularly in the fall months. You're very species specific. But the one point I want to make is that, you know, when, when these fish are abundant and a lot of people are fishing for them, you know, last few years down here have been really, really good. There's a lot of guides, a lot of people fishing. It's fantastic. In the fisheries management world, look at valuing fish that don't necessarily have a food value. We need to be like focused on the fact that, yes, yeah, so what? They're catching release. They're super valuable. And I mean, I, you know, tarpon's another great example there, but you know, there's not stock assessments on the species. At some point, we have to look specifically at these species and say, they're super valuable. And we need to be doing putting more resources into them, even if it's just a recreational catch and release fishery. Well, there's I think there's a lot of species like that, right? You got, you know, tarpon and bonefish are the first two that come to mind that have shown their value is is predominantly release fisheries. I mean, when I look at tarpon, I I can't help but think of that, you know, that that Boca Grand Pass tournament where they're just kind of where many years ago where they were just kind of snagging them. And the whole tarpon community kind of went up in arms and like blockaded the tournament. Paul, I'm sure you remember that. Um, you know, and that's, I mean, those are people kind of, you know, maybe, maybe you don't agree with their tactics or I, I don't know. I wasn't involved in that fishery, so I can't make a lot of comments. But I, my reaction when I saw it was like, wow, there's, there's some people who are standing up for the fish that they love, you know, maybe a lot of, Maybe a lot of bad activity, maybe a little snagging going on, maybe a lot of shark predation. You know, those hammerheads know that's where the migration goes. And if you hook a fish there, there's a there's a darn good chance it's going to become dinner. Um, a lot of a lot of release mortality because of that. It, you know, just a just a huge mess. And you know, frankly, I, I wonder when you look at the when you look at the disbursement of albacore up and down the coast you know it, it it makes me it makes me wonder you know how and and you know factoring in how many guides there are in florida chasing tarp and all that kind of stuff my, my point is that albacore are economically significant fish and I, I agree with you tom you know just to kind of just two things bother me about it right one is you, you can't take anything for granted in in today's in in, in today's fisheries right you got to appreciate what you got and you got to protect what you got. And the second thing is, you know, this is not 1956. Like, you can't just have an unregulated fishery, whether it's a bait fishery or, you know, we just we just got regulations. You know, there were just regulations put in on mackerel, 
in in the Northeast. Um, uh, you know, a fishery that's really never been regulated. It's just been kind of wide open for recreational fishermen, and now there's a limit on them. And and you know, maybe that'll help, maybe it won't. But it's it's hard for me to imagine a fishery that can stay healthy. Um, you know, with with no limits. So that that would be my point with with Albacore. Like, I don't think the Guides Association will take a position that says like there there can be no commercial fishery for them, but we should it better be accountable and 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 we should really know how many fish are out there um because a lot of folks it it seems eerie to me and and the reason why we're doing the tagging is to accumulate science so there's this is not what i'm about to say is not science-based but it's eerie to me that as the price for pound for albies increased the fishery by you guys started to decrease a little bit and I'm not a big believer in coincidence. So, and again, we have no science that says that Tom's catching the same albies that are in Florida and Paul's catching the same albies that Tom's catching. Um, we don't have any science that says that, but it seems pretty coincidental <laughs> that as this bait fishery has emerged and taken off, and as Paul said, you know, other fisheries have fallen, more people have become attracted to commercially fishing for false albacore uh that that y'all are seeing less and less of them and i mean i shudder to think paul like if one year the stripers didn't show up and the albies didn't show up well i already see that happening you know it's funny but in montauk the last few years it, it's been good albacore fishing but nothing like it was, you know, I mean, the, the seven years ago when they, I mean, I've never seen albacore when the bass were gone and maybe that had something to do with that. I don't know. Maybe there's more rain bait or they didn't, you know, whatever it may be. But now I'm finding myself that the albacore are more concentrated and I'm running a lot further. Like last year, most of the fish were way back over in the North Fork. They came into Montauk for a bit, schools of them, and you'd have them. But then you'd have to go, you know, further uh, north and, and west, and, you know, to, to find them. And then they would come back out. You know, you'd get them a little later in the season, maybe for a, a week or two, and then they were gone. So it wasn't, you know, I, I find that it, whether that's just because the schools and bodies, but it seems to me just by, you know, the observations of the last few years, we've had fewer albies and we're traveling a lot further, you know, to find them, you know. So it, it's sort of interesting that, you know, way back, they, they saved the day of the bass and now they seem to be sort of the, the rarer of the, the two by far. You know, we don't have them on the consistency that we used to. Tom, what are you what are you seeing in North Carolina? The quality of the fishery is still going to come down to your conditions, right? I mean, particularly where I'm at, um, since you know, Southeast North Carolina is the catcher's mitt for Atlantic hurricanes. You know, if I get a hurricane, fishing's probably not going to be that good. But I would agree with what Paul said. Um, while we've had some really good weeks and some really good years, on the average, we're running farther. We're looking farther. Uh, we're doing more to have the same sort of quality fishery that we had. Um, and I mean, a good year is when you don't have to look very much for eight weeks. You know, a not so good year is maybe when they're in the inlet really good for a week and then you spend the other seven weeks running around a lot more. Um, 
but I would have to say in general, there's definitely, you know, I hate to say the word downward trend, but harder to find. You're spending more time looking for them. So for the, for the listeners, when y'all head out, you know, cause I'm sure there's some folks who are listening to this podcast that have never caught an albacore, false albacore, you know, and never, never seen them and, and how y'all target them. So Paul kind of break that down for me. You know, you're, you're behind, you're behind a wheel on your boat. You look up and bam, there they are. And you're hollering at you guys to get ready, strip out the line and get the cat. What are you looking for? What are you looking for and what do you see and how are you, how are you positioning the boat and the wind and the tide? And I, I want people to understand what an absolute shit show it can be <laughs> to fly fish for a little fish that is like perfectly camouflage going 20 miles an hour through bait balls. So, uh, let's start with equipment and everything and what what i use and what i try to to do what i'm trying to achieve um you know everybody in the old days thought that the albacore because and there is situations like this and it does happen in blind casting we do it a lot where you're stripping fast you know that you got to move the fly and they're they're ripping through it and everything else in my area what i find is this is why i use floating lines and you know, usually a, a 10, 12 foot leader. And, a, and I have a fly that I like because it holds its profile. I don't have to strip it fast. What I want to do, if you look at albacore when they go through the rain bait and when they're coming up and boiling on it, it's almost like a trout. They circle underneath it, they come up and hit it. And, and if they break up the bait, there may be 10 baits you know, 10 little rain baits that are, you know, fleeing for their life and they dive below it. They pick off one, they come right back. They pick up the next They You turn around, come right back. So I want the fly where they're boiling and not to strip it out of where they're boiling. I just want to get tight to my line and I want my fly. This is why I use, you know, Popovic's, you know, uh, uh, epoxy fly, but I tie it out of a polar fiber because it holds the profile. If you tie it out of deer hair and whatever's sitting there without stripping it, let's say, and don't get me wrong, deer hair works and everything, but this, I can throw it into where they're boiling, leave the fly, get tight to my line, and usually I'm going to hook them. And it doesn't take a lot of stripping. It's leaving it where they're boiling that's the thing getting tight is more important to me than stripping fast and everything else through a school. So that's one of the techniques that we use. And it's, it's, it's great because you're picking up the fly line. That's why I like floating lines, because if they do move and they move over to the next bunch that are 30 feet the other day, I can pick the whole fly line up and I can hit them again. You know, and the other thing is, is for, for spin guys, it's cool. I don't think for us, we don't get hit as much. But when I have spinning guys throwing pink sluggos and stuff is a blast because they pound it on the surface. You know, they, they pick them out. They'll even if it's they're scattered and they're just running around in an area, not popping. If you throw that pink sluggo and skitter to top the top, 
you know, that's really a fun way to fish for them. And that's what I do with my spin guys, you know, that are deadly dicks. But the slug is a cool way to fish because it's so visual. So, Tom, does that resonate with with what you see? Oh, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And I got to appreciate the, the fishing with the sluggos. They're, you know, obviously a rebel jumping minnow or an Albi snacks right in the same category. I love doing that with fly fishermen. doesn't work all the time, but I don't know when it works is about as fun as anything that you can do. Um, and I mean, I agree with, with basically everything that, that Paul said. I use a very similar setup. I personally prefer a nine weight, but I use 10 weights a lot with clients because I find them to be a little bit more versatile. You know, I've been back and forth on intermediate versus floating lines, but I kind of settle on the floating lines for the same reason. When the fish are moving a lot, you can pick it up a lot easier. Um, um, I have a different fly that I really like, very similar to Epoxy Mano. I've always been a big fan of the Scock Whitebait Mushy. The very reasons that we talked about, it holds its profile very well and also sinks a little slower. And it also doesn't bounce as hard off my engine cowlings. So... <laughs> so um after after alby season it looks like somebody shot your engine with rock salt right like it's just or a shotgun like, right so <laughs> yeah just like peppered on the side yeah 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 you know that's i guess that's just that's that's part of the deal my thing with albies is you're using a itty bitty little fly most of the time and it's real easy for them to get all of that fly in their mouth if you're using an inch and a half or a two inch long fly real easy and when that happens if you don't have a decent leader on there you will not land that fish because those little triangle teeth are sharp i mean they will they will bite through a light leader pretty quick you know i i it's not quite as bad as like a small bluefish but they're they they can they can part ways with the leader pretty quickly. So, you know, from a guide's perspective, if they're not, uh, if they're not getting too picky and, and taking the fly, you might as well upsize so you can get them in quicker and handle them. Um, you know, you the, know uh, just to, not to interrupt, but you know, it's funny, Tommy, you said I use nine weights too. So when I first started, I was using my skiff and we used to chase them in the backside. We'd find them at Gardner's Island first and everything. So I had just started my first year of guiding and, and we had, you know, started seeing schools of them here and there and everything else. But when we started talking, when we really got into it, I was using eight weights because I was on my skiff and I was using, uh, you know, the stuff that I used on the flats. The first year that I started albacore fishing and I had my store, I broke 22 eight weights on the things because my clients <laughs> got all in the thing, I stick them, you know, everything. And I thought, that's it. No more eight weights. So I don't know, a guy walks on the boat, like well you can use it but it's at your own risk dude <laughs> i think that i think that may be a record um i remember uh i remember newsom chris newsom our board member from virginia went to some crazy island in the middle of nowhere a thousand miles west of burma i don't know man i don't even you know i don't even know if google maps has found it and uh and i sent him a message and i said hey was it good and he sent me back a picture of a pile of probably 20 or 30 fly rods that were all six and seven pieces uh just kind of laying on his floor and he was like yeah dude it was awesome uh, i was like man that is that's that's some work right there bud like, 
that. 22 fly rods. You ought to have like little marks on your skiff, man, like uh like World War II fighter pilots. You know what I mean? How many uh how many they take. So so you know, what we've learned is like floating line even though intermediate line could bring a little bit so you know different aspects to the story, the ability to pick up that line and lay it back out really critical with albies because they move so fast tiny flies that keep their profile right and are and are durable and match the hatch um and extra fly lines on your boat extra fly lines on your boat <laughs> so paul you were going to say something i don't interrupt you no no i, I think you, you know you're covering i use intermediate lines when i'm blind casting for them you know if they're not showing but i know they're in the area and you might see them once in a while they'll sort of break up and you see little dimples and they're just running around. Then I, you know, there's a thing called an albi whore, you know, which is a great fly. It stands out and holds its profile also and everything. And we'll use intermediate lines and cast them long and fast stripping to get their attention. If, you know, if we're not targeting them mostly through blind casting and we get them a lot doing that, you know, but, uh, but if they're up on the surface and everything, then we're, you know, the floating line routine is the is the key. I think the most like yeah, all this stuff, you know, I've seen albacore all of a sudden they get on, a, you know, peanut bunker or something. So you just change the profile of the fly and it's a little different, you know, routine. But uh, I think the the main thing, if I can tell anybody with albacore fishing is, is uh, you know, Get your cast down first of all, and uh, and just get tight to your line, you know. And and if you're in the fish and you know what the bait is and everything else, it's just persistence, you know. And then be ready. Don't touch your rod to the gunnel. Um, you know, I'll tell you as y'all are talking about this, where I live on the bay, um, we don't get albies that come up uh, into the bay where I'm at, but we get oversized Spanish mackerel. And and what I tell people when I take them out for Spanish and they're fly fishing, they never fish for big Spanish. You know, big Spanish to me is over you know twenty four plus inches. Uh, if you're getting Spanish that size, that's a that's a fun Spanish mackerel to catch. These aren't like fourteen inch Spanish mackerel. But these will eat fourteen inch Spanish mackerel. And um, and th the most effective way that I've found is they'll they'll be on the outside of breaking stripers and bluefish, and as the as that mass is moving in the water and they're on those bay anchovies, the Spanish mackerel are so much faster than the blues and the and the stripers. They'll be swimming literally circles around that school of breaking fish, and they're just picking off hurt anchovies. Um, and I th it was it was not a it, I didn't have an Einstein moment and decide to try something different. I I made a long cast and I had a huge knot. Uh, in my fly line and I was cursing and picking the knot out and right when I picked the knot out boom, came tight with a real big Spanish mackerel and I was like wait a minute and, and I threw it out again and I just dead stick the fly and I caught another one and I caught another one and I caught another one you can't strip fast enough to take something away from an albacore or a Spanish mackerel it's not possible um, you just can't do it and uh and and it's pretty funny that you know you see people trying to burn their lures and their flies for whatever reason when they're fishing for those fish and really the most one of the most effective ways of fishing with the fly rod is to just put it in the right spot and let it sit there 
Uh, I kind of always find that fascinating. It's totally counterintuitive, but uh, but if you want to catch more of them, they'll see the fly, and and they'll they will they will key in on something that isn't moving. Anchovies can't swim that well. I mean, they they really can't. It they're not they're not like, they're not going to be swimming upstream like a salmon. I can promise you that they're little itty bitty things, and uh, and and you know they have a tough time against the wind and the current and everything, and they're you know albacore not used to seeing them go flying past them uh they're usually they just look for the hurt ones to kind of pick them off so paul uh, you know tom i know your season for albies really starts up october right well it just depends on the year i mean we have really great septembers too if the water's really clear um i mean we'll start seeing fish late august smaller fish right uh but close to the beach but i would say on an average year mid to mid to late you know, uh, early to mid October is when you're going to start having consistent quality fishing. And, you know, depending on when you fish in my area, there's other stuff mixed in as well, whether it's bluefish or Spanish mackerel, um, you know, and it will, it's got different dynamics over the season based off average size on the water temperature. I mean, you can't predict most of it. You can try, um, they'll just make a fool of you. And then if you try to predict when a certain size of fish are going to be there, but you really start to see them right when the fall kicks in, right? Like, yeah, every, every year is different. You know, it's, it's funny last year, uh, they didn't come in till October the year before they, uh, came in the first week in September, we started seeing them. Um, so in ours, you know, usually they're gone by the first week in November, you know, they're on their way to see Tom. So, uh, but, uh, but so, you know, and every year's different, you know, it's, it's like with everything, it's the conditions. And, and like last year we had warm water, very late, you know, there was a lot of tuna around down the beach, everything. So, you know, it, it lasted pretty long. Uh, but usually by November, you know, it's, it's done, but you know, it's, it's funny. You reminded me, Tom, when you're talking about Harkers and everything else. So this is the coolest place or the coolest thing I've ever seen in Albacore fishing was down in Harkers Island and way in the back of the hook and everything else. And lefty's the one that took me in to do this, but he said, Paul, I got to show you something here. You know, there's a really cool, you go back and you fish him in the grass and you look. Yeah. For yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. The I love grass it. Is moving. So you'd see these fish, you know, you'd see the grass shaking and, and you'd like, okay, where's he going to come out? And you'd watch the trail of grass as it's getting bumped. And that's how you fit. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was really technical, but it was a blast because these things were going through the grass in the back of, uh, you know, in the hook there. Have you seen that, Tom? It's been a while, but a few times. I got so excited when you were talking about it because it's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. There was uh, in the back of the hook, there was some, you know, some Spartina grass on the floor. You get uh, right on the shore, you get one of these big tides in this. The way the the shoreline goes, some of these silver sides or bay anchovies, whatever they're in at the time, would get, get would get back in there, and they would eat them in the Spartina grass like they were a tail and redfish or something. It's wild. I just uh, laugh. I, la- cool. I laugh thinking about it. it's been a while, but it's still. It- I've never, I've never heard of that. That is awesome, and the fact that Lefty knew they were there is even more awesome. Well, you know, it was really cool at, at the time. Lefty's actually the one that you know said you got to come. Tom Earnhardt was the guy that sort of brought that whole uh, 
you know, fishery down in Harkers and everything alive because he started bringing people out and Lefty was a friend. And then Lefty called me with Bob Popovics and Bob Clouser and myself. And that's when the first year that I went down there. And then for the next five years, uh, Sage would get a house and we all stayed down there, you know, and it was, it was a blast. It was actually, uh, you know, one of those old things we did like the pirates party up here and all everybody would come to sort of discover this new fishery. And at that time, that was the new fishery, these false albacore. And it created a whole a guiding community, all the local boat builders and the commercial guys, you know, started getting into the, the false albacore fishing. It really created a whole economy down there. Yeah, I so, mean, what a story. Like, thank both of y'all for kind of vibing on this and, and going with it because, I mean, what a history, right? What a story. I, I can, I'll add my little tidbit to it. Uh, lefty, I used to run a, I may still do it. I don't know. We, you know, with COVID and everything, I, I put a hold on one of the a fly fishing show that I ran and it was named after lefty in the mid Atlantic. And, um, and my favorite part of the show was after everyone kind of left and we'd all go grab dinner. Um, you know, the, after the first night of the show and, and one day, you know, you just, and as a, as a young, as a younger man, then I did the show for 20 years it was one of the few instances in my life where I just keep my mouth shut and try to soak it all in because I had Clouser and Popovics and Lefty and all these guys like telling hysterical stories when they were younger. And one of my favorites was Lefty uh, about Harkers. And I, and I think Paul, I think it probably, you may have been there. Um, if, if you weren't, uh, I bet you're going to wish you were, but anyway, I think Bob had just, come back from vietnam he had been in the marines and and he was starting to make a name for himself as a as a fly tire and uh and a fly fisherman and lefty had never really met him before and somehow he got an invite to go to harkers and the way that lefty told the story it was like the first hotel that they had built on harkers and they had just built it and that's where lefty and everyone was staying and you know lefty was a lefty was a, a short man uh vertically speaking and and popovics is a mountain of a man um and uh and and lefty said they're all kind of sitting around the pool and here comes popovics and uh and lefty was like oh you know you're that you're that guy popovics right oh you know i heard you're a pretty good fisherman and uh and he goes and and bob was kind of being very humble and, and sheepish because you know it was lefty and clouser and all those all that group and eventually they made him get up on the diving board of the swimming pool at the hotel and show them all how he cast it and as i was being told this story i was looking at popovic's face and you know you because you weren't there and you're a lot younger than these guys are uh I just couldn't imagine being a young Bob Popovics, being new to the sport and having Lefty and Clouser have him stand up on a diving board and give a casting demonstration, arguably in front of the best caster that's, you know, ever been born. So anyway, that's my uh, that's kind of my funny story with Harkers and and how the, all those guys got to know each other. Um, but, you know, my God, what a what a history and and what a what a fish. And I guess it makes me even more emboldened to try to do something you know to to make sure that these fish are around for 
for a lot of generations to come. And I, we have a, we have, we have some things in the works uh, beyond the tagging. Um, and I can, I can promise the listeners that we're going to do every single thing within our power uh, to get the right science on these fish and manage them because we need our board members like Paul and Tom and everyone else uh, to still be able to catch these things. And, you know, if, if y'all are listening to this podcast and, and now you want to go catch an albacore, go on the guides association website, look at, look at some of our members, look at some of our guides. A lot of them are the best in the business. Uh, you can't really go wrong, go wrong with any of them. I got my fingers crossed that y'all are going to have a good, a good Albi season. And I got my fingers double crossed that it's going to do nothing but get better. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think I'll send y'all both some flies, uh, that, that your clients can smash on the cowling of your, uh, of your engines and, uh, break off on Albies and y'all can, y'all can, as a, as a thank you, I'll send them to you and y'all can call me in about a week and say, all your flies are gone. Send me more. Um, I, I will, I will share one other funny story before we, we cut loose. Paul's fly box at the end of the season is something to behold. Um, I, I don't, <laughs> it's just like he opens it and it's like clowns coming out of a clown car. There's just like, you can tell the mayhem that Paul sees on any given day because man, I don't, there were a lot of flies in that box. That's all I could say. And, uh, and, and I was, I was chuckling pretty hard and I, man, I was like, this is like, uh, you know, this is, this is like Paul Dixon's home for wayward flies, man. That's all I know. These boxes, because these things have seen, they have seen some shit in their lives, these flies. So, you know, it's funny you say that, Tony, because, uh, at the end of the season, I'm usually at five o'clock in the morning, sitting down and trying to the end of the day. I'm ended up, you know, that I've uh, I've lost everything that I tied that morning. So I now have guides that are, you know, fly tires. I, I send them what I want and everything else because, you know, it got after years and years of doing this, I thought, you know, this five o'clock in the morning tying a dozen flies, losing every single one of them to Albies during the day, coming back the next morning, it's getting old quick. So. <laughs> It's a great fish. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful animal to behold. So uh, they're, they're real important. So I applaud all the work that we're trying to do and trying to figure this fish out where he goes and what his habits are so that maybe you can offer some protection and it doesn't, you know, take a slide downward. Yeah, that's, that's certainly our goal. I want to sincerely thank both of y'all. Um, I think it shows the connectivity of of our of our board and all of our members and and how your clients like to fish and why they why they go out with you um and you know a lot of people uh you know one man's trash is another man's treasure that's all i can say and and these fish are a treasure to a lot of our folks and we're going to do everything we can to learn more about them and, and make sure they're around for y'all until, uh, until y'all don't want to guide anymore. Uh, I don't, I, I don't want these fish to go away. 
So thank you, Tom and, and, and Paul for being on the guidepost. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. We look forward to having you again. And I hope, I hope y'all have a spectacular Albie season. Thanks, Tony. Thanks so much. And Tom, it was a pleasure. I'm going to get down there and, you know, be running around you one of these days. I, I'm looking forward to it, man. Um, <laughs> now I was going to say earlier, uh, you know, the years that you fished down here, that was when I was like, you know, I was a teenager and I was becoming a fly fisherman. One of the reasons I'm a guide was watching all of you guys out there, these guides that I read about and fly fishing for saltwaters and saw on TV. I was captivated and, you know, I owe it to Albacore and all of that and it's culture that got created down here then so so i'll tell you one last story real quick since you just mentioned that so when lefty and all of us are staying down at the house down there and and uh there's a, a guy there and he just became he came from marlin magazine and they just made him the editor of saltwater fly fishing so lefty he doesn't really fly fish you know but lefty i end up getting canceled lefty says hey paul would you mind taking this guy out you know and, and uh, i said sure lefty i'll take him out there so we go through the whole day and it's really tough we're out trying to find him you know and so uh finally at the you know midday i i find a school of and everything else and i tell the guy he really can't cast so in those days if we found him way outside or something they'd chum him you know so they throw little bits of bait and stuff and so i, I we see him bust and we throw some chum and then sure enough they come around the boat and they start going so i tell the guy okay go ahead and and start gonna put the little fly on he starts casting and he can't cast very far and i'm rigging his friend but he drops the fly he gets hooked up and i said great okay just fight him you know so he's going back and forth the fish is running and, and so uh you know about 10 minutes later, I'm like, are you still on that fish? The other guy starts casting. And I said, look, you got to pull on this thing. You really got to pull on him. You know, this is ridiculous. So the thing takes us around the boat. And it's literally now we're 20 minutes into it. And I'm like, come on, man. It's like doing the tuna circle under the boat. and everything. Well, when he finally gets it up, it's a monster. And Brian and Sarah Gardner at the time were trying to do the world's record, which was 19 pounds. So I knew that, you know, this fish was on 16 pound test was, was well over, you know. So we look at this thing and, and I said, man, that's the, probably the new world's record right there. And the guy says, well, maybe we should go in and take it in. I said, no, 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 we're staying out. I said, let's just take a picture. So I, we take a picture, we toss it back in, and it swims off. A week later, I get a call from Peter Van Geitenbeek, who's the publisher of Saltwater Fly Fishing. And he says, so, Paul, I hear that you fish with my editor, and you throw his new world's record albacore overboard. So what do you have to say about that? He said, I suggest that you read the editorial this month because he talks about you releasing his world's record. So anyway, but that was it was great times in Harker's in those days, and it was all made possible because of the false albacore. I'll tell you what, man, I, Paul, I, I swear, I think I, I would, if you didn't have a double tomorrow, I would just let this keep rolling and just letting you tell story after story, because these things need to be recorded for posterity. Right. Um, I, I, I certainly learned a lot. Uh, it's nice to know that in your younger years, 
you pissed people off like I piss people off these days. By the, uh, just, don't worry, you, Tony. I still do. You know? Awesome. That's why I think that's why we like like each other so much, Paul. Um, you know, actually, Tom Tom is not shy about pissing people off either. Nope. So nope. we got to have maybe this is like maybe this will just be like a once a month thing, and we'll just it'll be a subset of the guidepost and just call it like the guys who piss people off. 